Episode 130 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the English singer-songwriter and pianist Gary Brooker, who was the founder and lead singer of the rock band Procol Harum, best known for their classic number one single from 1967, A Whiter Shade of Pale. They went on to have plenty more hit singles and albums around the world. Gary also worked with many other great artists, including George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, Bill Wyman and the Alan Parsons Project. Gary sadly died in February 2022 at the age of 76. This interview took place in February 2018 when he was promoting Procol Harum's 8-CD box set Still There'll Be More, an anthology 1967-2017, to which was released by Cherry Red Records. What kind of experience has it been for you putting this Procol Harum box set together? Well, it seemed quite an exciting project because it was rather than just sticking out a best ofs and other compilation things, this seemed to be quite a thorough job. Mm -hmm. So I made sure that the record company had a lot of extra material, not especially tapes, but I did have a few tapes that they were able to have that had not come out in the quality before, and also a lot of sort of photos and posters and memorabilia type things, which, you know, I think there's going to be a book with it, therefore they would be more interesting and stuff that hadn't been seen or might be of interest to a reader. Yeah, yeah. And, and to what extent has this project made you reflect on decisions you made regarding the band and maybe wish you'd done things differently? Yeah, I don't think it did, really. You know, there's a good song by Edith Piaf called You Regret Work Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't think I've got any regrets about things we've done. Things are always there for a reason. We've made some strange recordings. <laughs> I think probably our tenth album was our strangest. Uh, but I don't regret it. I think one day, there was one on it. I mean, we've been going ten years. We've done lots of different things. We've done a second album. We had something that was 18 minutes long, which had never been done really by mm -hmm. the group at that time. A little sweet. And on our tenth album, sort of ten, uh, nine years later, we ended up with another 18 or 20 minute long thing, <laughs> except this one was spoken. I suppose if there's any regrets, it's, it's that we didn't have more time, and I hadn't actually figured out how to sing those lyrics over the piece. Did you want Brokelheim to be as big as the Beatles or the Stones at the time? Did even think like that. I think one would like to be appreciated for what you're attempting to do, which was you know, we got our wish with a white shade of pale because we were doing something a bit different and everybody liked it. I mean, the Stones are, and the Beatles are very different acts. I was a, always a Stones fan because I saw them live all the time. I used to tour with them. So I knew, I knew their energy and their, their stage presence. The Beatles were a bit more, you know, four mop heads bobbing around, but they were, you know, supremely talented and fantastic singers and everything. People used to scream at them, they, they hated it, you know. They got all this trouble to write a nice song and record it, and then nobody even hears it because they're all screaming. Many but, people 
consider Whiter Shade of Pale to be the greatest record ever made, what do you think is the greatest record ever made? Whiter Shade of Pale. You do? Good for you. <laughs> Not Bohemian no, Rhapsody. I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's been, there's been one. There's been a hundred that could be that. I mean, I think it turned out great. I mean, particularly the, because it was quite primitive in those days compared to, mm-hmm. you know, even ten years later or five years later. It was, it was primitive four-track. It was all done live. You know, the vocal and everything, there's yeah. no overdubs, it's just we went in and we played it and sang it. And I think we were lucky to get the way the sound came out, with probably l- luck in it, you know. Do you think it's Progal Harum's finest track? No. Is it, is it your favourite among them? No, no. No. Okay, so what is then? Well, I don't know, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I always enjoy singing A White Shade of Pale. Because it's interesting to sing and play. It's not boring. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'd have been bored after a year, let alone 50 years. <laughs> but it, no, it's a very interesting song to play. There's plenty of room in it for improvisation or handing out solos if you want to. It's always interesting to sing. When I sing something, I always put myself into it anyway. I live that song for a few minutes, however, you know, whatever it is. And it conjures up pictures, lyrically speaking. It always conjures up pictures in one's mind as you're doing it. How many times a day are you asked what Why the Shade of Pale is about? Well, at this moment, about six. I guess because you're doing no, interviews. Actually, you're the first person that's, that's asked that okay. today. Right. But usually it's frequent, I imagine. Um, a lot of people were embarrassed to ask that question because... They think, well, if I can't figure it out, there's something wrong with me. If they can't. I mean, uh, people on top of the pops, you know, have said that in public on television, you know. Don't know what it means. Well, you know, it's Tony Blackburn or Jimmy Savile or who it was. But, you know, um, that is an expression of uh, all you're saying is that you haven't thought about it enough. Well, what's your explanation for it, then? Well, I didn't write the lyrics, so I don't have to explain it, but if... If you're talking about as a singer singing those words, mm-hmm. there are couplets, which is two lines that go together, and each one of those seems to conjure up a picture, an image, and the image all all ties together. Mm. It is all swirling round, with a lot of smoke and light and and a woman somewhere in it, but at least you can get to the chorus every time, which kind of knits it all together. But, you know, one minute you're singing about the waiter bringing you a tray, and the next minute you're talking about 16 Vestal Virgins who've, who left for the coast. <laughs> you know, people think, well, what coast? <laughs> well, it, do- it doesn't actually matter. Well, they go, why was there 16 Vestal Virgins? Well, that doesn't matter. Luckily, it didn't say one of 23 Vestal Virgins, or 32, because that would have been harder to sing, probably, but I'd have got it in there somehow. You know, it just conjures up these images. It's summarised each time it comes to the chorus, and so it was that later. What have been the most memorable misconceptions or false myths about that song? Oh, I haven't, I haven't heard them. I just hear it sometimes where people, there have been co- a lot of covers of it, and sometimes they haven't read the words. and they, They've taken it from our original, perhaps, and just misread it. I mean, so it was that later as the mirror told its tale. Whereas the miller 
is what it is, and I think that probably is, you know, like a reference to Chaucer, really, or it's just used a line that might stick in people's minds. But it certainly wasn't mirror, although it could have been. <laughs> Do you have a favourite or least favourite cover of White Shade? Well, my favourite has always been King Curtis, who is a great sax player who's sadly not with us now. But he did do an album called Live at the Fillmore West. I think when he was there with his band backing Aretha Franklin, that was recorded, and so was his set as well. And he plays it magnificently. You know, he's got Billy Preston on the organ. And, you know, it's just... Great I mean, that's not sung. But I, I just always liked it. I thought, if you're going to do a white shade of pale... I mean, it's not easy to do, I shouldn't think. It's no. not easy to cover it. They usually have to do it a bit like what the original was. Are there any you haven't liked? I think probably. I don't like the foreign ones very much. No, I mean, if you want to have a go at it, I, I, no, I could not say there's anything that I don't like. Many people have probably assumed you guys were on drugs when you composed A White Shade of Pale. Would they be right? I was personally, I was, I was drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> Reed, I would think he was not on drugs. I don't think he could have put that together without having a fair very clear clear thinking head it's not some babble induced by by surgic acid or anything what have been the most unusual requests you've had to use the song for advertising or to be performed at a vip party or something i think from the advertising ones come to mind we always have our, over the years got notified and asked by the publishers if we would agree it being used for this or that. I mean, this happened as soon as it came out. Seven Up wanted to use it. We said, no, we're not getting involved with pop drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and we turned it down flatly, didn't even ask how much. In later years, I remember once that we turned down one of the big smoking people who wanted to use it to advertise cigarettes. Now, if people want to smoke, they smoke, but I didn't really want the white shade of pale or focal harm to be promoting people having cigarettes. Yeah, quite right. Uh, but you know, I think the following week, we had somebody who wanted to use it for a condom advert. And I thought, well, that, yes, that's all right, because that might do some good. <laughs> so <laughs> he said yes to that one. <laughs> Why did the band split? What, in 1977? Yes. Well, at that point in time, we felt we'd gone full circle. We made our 10th album, and when we sort of objectively looked back at it, we found that we'd actually ended up doing something that was 18 minutes long. One side of this is one piece was 18 minutes long, and it was a spoken word, which sort of, well, it just developed at that point in the studio, and that's, when, that's how we ended up at the end of the album. But we did think perhaps things have gone full circle. There wasn't much inspiring one at the time. I mean, actually, the punks had started, so there's a lot of... Um, Young people weren't particularly interested in something like that, not unsurprisingly. Disco was big. It just felt, I wouldn't say it felt like it was time for a break, because we mm. actually all said goodbye to each other and sort of went our separate ways. Procore Arm has been playing live for the last 10 years. We put an album out in 1991. We got reborn. Our output has not, not been as great over those years as it was in the first decade. 
and we, we had our last one out in 2003, mm-hmm. and then we just put one out in 2017. We had a, a big break in the middle where everybody went off. Well, and I went off, you know, and did lots of other things, but in the end I came back to the mothership and we're still sailing. What projects have you got coming up in the foreseeable future? What's next after this? We've just finished quite intensive touring for the last, well, since the beginning of September after our new album. We've only just come back from Norway where we did some concerts. And I've taken this opportunity where I could see I've got three months here with not, not anything on. And I need to get my shoulder fixed. So I'm going to have a, a shoulder replacement. Why is that then? Is it t- too much repetitive strain or something? On something called a- AVN. See the part of growing up, or it's something that happened a long time ago. You never know. I mean, you can hurt yourself when you're 15 years old. But you hurt yourself a few years ago in South Africa, didn't you? you had a head injury. Bloody, bloody mugged, drugged and mugged. Oh right. Yeah, no, I had a fractured skull there. I thought you'd fallen over in your hotel room. That was what the press were well, told. Well, I may have done, but what were the other people doing there? So what happened? Well, I don't know, because I was through hip mold. Really? Mm. So somebody drugged your drink? Yes. And you fell asleep, and then I they... No, you don't fall asleep with through hip mold. You just don't remember anything. They stole money off you, or what? No, they did not steal money. No, the only result of that... I couldn't get much backing from the South African police. I don't think they wanted to admit. Because we had a lot of publicity. We were playing there with 10cc Moody Blues from Procol Harum. So a big British invasion for a few days. And I don't think they wanted the publicity that a visiting celebrity, if you like, could get banged on the head. So they all got played down, rather, by by the locals. And, of course, if I couldn't remember anything, it was very hard to make any decision even the doctor said i said was i hit with something then and he said no 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 you weren't hit with anything but i i I don't believe that i was in the hospital there quite quite bad for a while in the end i was there three weeks before i got out and flew home but then i'd just been home a few days and i got a call from the credit card people who said that somebody was trying to use my card at a, right. at a cash machine in some dodgy suburb of Cape Town, but they hadn't had my pin. So who knows? So there was scallywags afoot. What is there to come for? Is there like a, uh, an ultimate gig that you'd like to have, you guys, um, like Albert Hall? or? Well, we've played all these places. Yeah, I know, yeah. There's a lot of big bands that play to... 100,000 people mm-hmm. in, a, in a gigantic stadium with all screens up and that. I don't think I'd like that. And I can't imagine 100,000 people all singing along. They're even frightened to join in with the white shade of pale. I'm not one of those singers that gets the audience to sing it. I'll do it, thank you very much. <laughs> if they really want to join in, well, I'll, they can do it, but I don't encourage them. You worked on several albums by George Harrison. What's your fondest memory of him? My fondest memory of George is that he was, in fact, a great gardener. He loved trees and shrubs and plants. He loved landscaping. And I have a great love for that as well myself. And the first time I went to his house, when he lived in Henley, he took me round and I sort of knew quite a few Latin names of a lot of the trees and things he was showing me. 
and I think a lot of people he'd had up there, they probably got bored after 10 minutes of walking around looking at all the specimens, whereas I got more and more interested in it. That's my fondest memory of him. But, I mean, he was a very, very nice man. Yes. He always had been. I'd known him since 1965 or whatever. And he was always... A gentleman. A gentleman, the yeah. most approachable beetle as well. No fancy pants. Not e egotistical in any way whatsoever. Mm. He always usually laughed at the, what he used to call of the Fab Four. Mm. <laughs> but he was a great musician, a good songwriter, and... And everything, so it yeah. was uh, just pleasure. But that's my fondest memory, most different memory, was the fact that he was a, a, gardener. Was a great gardener. And you also toured with Ringo's all-star band. Um, yeah. How has he changed since becoming Sir Ringo recently? Well, I haven't seen him since he became Sir, so I, I shouldn't think he's changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that you and Eric Clapton are overdue knighthoods? Well, when you think of some people that do have knighthoods or who are even honoured in some way, you think, well, why did they get that? I think Eric is a, well, great lasting musician, of course. He's one of the best guitar players that we've ever produced. And we're not the only ones that think that. All the American stars think that as well. You know, they've all had him on his record and they're honoured to have him there. And he's always done a fantastic job. So he is... As far as Britain goes, he's, he's been an absolute stalwart, and he is very British. And also, he's always paid his taxes, I hope. <laughs> I can't see any reason why he wouldn't. I haven't seen his new biographical film, but we all know that he's overcome certain hurdles in life, you know, dependency on things. And uh, I think he's shown himself to be a strong character and at the same time being the, the great guitarist he is. Why not? Mm. That fits. I mean, it, it, to me, that fits better than Sir Mick Jagger, you know, who lives in France or somewhere, so he doesn't have to pay British taxes. Are you not a Mick fan, then? Yeah, I'm a fan of Mick's. Yeah. I'm just, from that point of view, mm. being honoured by the Queen, being a member of the most extraordinary order of the British Empire. Mm. Empire? Change that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just think, sometimes you think, well... Why have they got something, you know? Mm. But sometimes you don't know what people have done behind the scenes. You've also worked with Bill Wyman's Rhythm Kings. You reminded me, I must give him a call and see how he is. Uh, I don't think he's been playing out on the road with his Rhythm Kings lately, because I see some of the others, and uh, he doesn't seem to have a plan to go out at the moment. But, you know, he's, he's done quite a lot, Bill, and he doesn't like flying, so that really always limits things and makes them quite hard tours if you've got to do it all on a bus. <laughs> what music do you listen to these days? What, who do you rate of today's music stars? Oh, Lemon Twigs, I suppose. Well, I, I, I've always got my ears open for a, a band that are usually going to be young people because we know what all the old fellas do. You know, young bands that have a good approach. You know, I've always on the, got my ears open for somebody that can actually sing as opposed to not singing. You know, therefore, you, you know, if I see someone like Emily Sanday or Rag and Bowman, I think, oh, they can sing. And it's just them singing. It's not 18 other backing vocalists. I don't like to hear the same thing every day, you know, star-wise. You know, I need to find a good radio station. That's the trouble. 
Pop music in recent times has become increasingly sexualized, centered around pretty young women wearing next to nothing, singing raunchy lyrics, dancing provocatively. How have you felt about that? Because I find it quite depressing, really. Oh, I think it's vulgar. I mean, a grinding... I saw Madonna doing something the other. I'm not sure if it's new or not. But I thought, that's so vulgar. I mean, she's got her ass hanging out of a pair of knickers. And her ass wasn't in such good a shape as the six girls that were dancing, doing the same thing next to her, you know. <laughs> they were all 30 years younger than her. No, I, I think just overall to sexualise it so, so much. I mean, they are grinding, you know, they're getting down on their haunches and pumping away. And the trouble is, you know, some little girl of eight or ten is think, thinks is that the way, that's the way you should dance. Or yeah. that's the way you should be if you want to be a pop star, you know. I mean, Adele is sort of quite a bit weighty and there's a good voice, doesn't she? Yes. I wouldn't like to see her pumping away with her knickers. <laughs> no, it's a, a sexualisation. I mean, the guys do it as well. They're grabbing their crotch and poking their fingers, raping and pillaging. It's, it's a side of music I don't really relate to very much, but it seems to be very prevalent. Uh, but, uh, you know, even for the media side of it, the people that do these things, to, to say that this is the way it is, and usually the lyrics are crap as well. And so I don't, I don't like it, no. And in 2005, you worked with Kate Bush. Any memorable moments spent with her? <laughs> That's rather personal. <laughs> well, I wish it was. It would be a good story. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, uh, she's a very talented lady. Oh, yes. You know, I've worked with her when she was just being a mum all the time. And I was always trying to get her to, to, you know, get out and do something every now and again. She was very intent on being a mum, and she probably made a good job of it. And I think probably little Bertie is now growing up, and she's, well, she did come out and not just make, I think she's always been making records, but they've been few and far between. Do you think she'll make another comeback? Or should oh, she? Kate Bush ought to be up there and idolised. You know, what you do is you hear Wuthering Heights, as if she's never made another recording. She's done fantastic songs and yeah. fantastic albums, and she's not just a talented singer and writer and everything. She, you know, she interprets these things and dances around. She really does put music across properly. Not grinding and oinking like these vulgar people. <laughs> you know, she's got a lot of, lot of talent, a lot of class, and I hope she's... She just ought to be... Dame, Dame Kate Bush. Oh. And how did you get to land a role in Evita? Uh, I've got fans, you know. <laughs> you have? Alan Parker is one of them. Alan does like, he likes his music. He likes putting it in, using it in films in one way or another. I mean, when he did the commitments, he used a white shade of pale. It's a humorous effect in that. And um, I just got a call. And so they were doing a Vita and they would like, like me to be in it. And how was Madonna to work with? Never met her. The only one I met out of the cast was uh, Antonio Banderas. I was sitting next to him in the makeup and hairdressing caravan. We were both being done for our upcoming scenes. And, you know, so we've got mirrors in front. I can see him in the mirror, he can see me. I just looked at him and I said, oh, I wish I had your looks, Antonio. <laughs> and he said, I wish I had your voice, Gary. Oh, nice. It was a nice little exchange. Yeah. 
Did you fancy doing more acting after that? Were you offered other acting roles? Oh, got calls the next morning after the premiere. I thought, this is it. You serious? I did get a call, but it didn't come to anything, and I've never had one since. Oh. Did you want to do more? I would have liked to have explored that avenue a little more. I thought I was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In, in the last couple of decades, quite a number of music acts like ABBA, Queen and the Kinks have had stage musicals created around their music. What chance of that happening for Procol Harum? Hmm. Well, there's always... I think the content is there, right? The content to make an interesting story or presentation on stage is there if you troll through the output over the years. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever done it. I don't think it's quite commercial enough. You would have to have a very good writer and a very good idea, you know, from the, the screenplay, if you like, you know, mm -hmm. on the script side, you'd have to have a very good... We did talk to... I think it was Peter Schaefer once, but it would have been 25 years ago. But the idea didn't, didn't really come to anything. You explained earlier that you haven't seen Eric Clapton, A Life in Twelve Bars, but how surprised were you that such a private man should bear his soul in such a way? Well, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't say. I, uh, you know, I mean, Eric, Eric's never been shy to say that he was an, he's an alcoholic. He's never been, he's never frightened away because I think he likes to encourage anybody else with problems to, to seek some help. So he's a thoughtful person on, on that level. Therefore, he does not shy away from the facts. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me that he should be open in a... And if he agreed to do it, he must have talked about it with the people who were, had the idea and, and decided that it was time. <laughs> to what extent do you think your life would make a good documentary or movie? Well, everybody's life could be interesting, and if it's if it's if it was well written and you know the direction everything works, anybody can be interesting, even me. <laughs> Who would play you? Do you think these days, the young you, the young me, the young me? God, uh, Antonio Banderas, it'd have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> and Bill Nye can play me in later years. <laughs> <laughs> what chance of an autobiography from you in due course? Oh, it's something that's always on the cards in the sense that I've always been quite good at writing. One of my only GCEs was in English language and English literature. Uh, the other one was human anatomy, physiology and hygiene. Hmm? Well, I think I might have got a biology as well. Right. But I failed maths. That's why I'm not an astronaut. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying you celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary this year. What's been the secret of the success of your marriage? Well, I think you've got to pick the right person. That's the first thing. I mean, a lot of people do seem to get married and decide they don't like each other, which I think you've really got to check that out before. There's a lot of luck involved, though, isn't there? Of course there is. A lot of luck, a lot of understanding. You, you have to talk. I mean, we don't have flaming rows. Now and again, we have disagreements. Always have, you know. It wouldn't be life otherwise. But you just have to talk about it and... Maybe you have a couple of days' silence, but then you both say sorry. <laughs> Saying sorry is, the, is one of the points as well. Yeah. But over the decades, how have you managed to resist the inevitable temptations that go with being a rock star? Well, if you've got a nice wife at home and you've made vows, then that's the end of the story, really. How do you plan to celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary? <clears throat> well, I could say that we'll have a party, but we always have parties. I'd like to just go and see something I haven't seen before. 
May we know why you didn't have children? We weren't blessed, actually. We weren't blessed. I couldn't have afforded it anyway. <laughs> now you're a bit older, do you kind of think, oh, it would have been so nice to have had children and grandchildren now? No. No, and it's only a worry, isn't it? How did you feel about selling your 16th century cottage in Dunsfold a few years ago? Well, it wasn't a cottage. Okay, yeah. Mansion? No, no. Somewhere in between. Okay. It was a house, at yeah. least. A house with some land. Well, we lived there for 43 years, which is a, a big slice of life. But in the end, we thought, we've done it. Yeah. We've been there, we've been self-sufficient. You know, we've planted forests and gardens and growing our own vegetables and raised our own chickens and lambs and whatever else. Quite hard work, all that. And a lot of grass to mow, or you have to pay somebody to do it, of course. What was it like having Anthea Turner for a neighbour? Oh, marvellous. She's a sweet lady. Yeah, she... very bubbly, very bubbly girl. I wish her all the best, I think. I don't know, now and again she seems to put a foot wrong and kind of blows it. I mean, I think they having the OK or hello to a wedding to Grant and then sort of selling it also to Cambridge Chocolate and things. It just, uh, she probably needs to make money now and again, but she's not doing all that well at that. But she's a, she's a lovely person. She's a great presenter. But unfortunately, she's not, you know, in the, in the top ten. And may we know roughly where you moved to and what sort of place you have now? Oh, I, I, I moved into town. Into Guildford? Yeah. Right. I'm now an urban... Urban boat. I wander around the streets looking for trouble. Um, <laughs> I like wandering around a town. It's just like I haven't done it since I was 18 or 20 or whatever. Lived in London till 1970, so I think. Since then, I've been in the country. So it's just nice to get back and actually be able to walk to the pub or, or the Costa, get a cup of coffee, and walk to the train station. I appreciate you probably won't comment on the court cases and legal rulings over White Shade of Pale, but can you say how much that took out of you as a person? Well, I think you, you learn that you can't really trust anybody. I think my greatest disappointment was in, was in British justice, which I now fail to believe in. Do you think you'll ever retire completely, or do you plan to sort of bop till you drop? Oh, bop till I drop. You love your work still, then? Love yes, your yeah. I'm still able to do it. You know, I've got the energy and I've got the, got the voice still. And there is no reason to not... I mean, of course, you've got to have demand as well. You've got to have somebody that's going to say, yes, please come and play in wherever it is. And as long as that's, there's, there's demand, and it seems to be going very well at the moment. Yeah, I'm not surprised, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think 50 years has given it a little bit of a boost. A new studio album has given it a definite boost. You know, trouble with albums these days is that where do you get it from? If you're a buyer, who do you sell it to? You know, it's, um, it's all a bit cloudy, that, to somebody of my age, if you like. <laughs> you can download Procol's album. If you're really lucky, you can have a, still have a CD shop where you could order it in your town. But you can get things off Amazon. In your younger days, did you ever have any sort of rock star moments, like throwing TVs out of windows or anything? No, I don't think so. Were we talking about the vulgarity of pop singing these days? Yeah, we were, yeah. We were, it was. Well, I think it's the same thing as trashing a room. It's pretty much falls into the same category. It's not necessary. 
now and again it has its humorous points. I mean, Keith Boone, when the Who, who checked into a Hyatt house once in uh, Los Angeles, and the manager said to them, I've heard all about you lot. If there's any trouble, if you start smashing things, then you're going to get the full weight of the law. And they all went to their rooms, and it was one of those hotels that has a big atrium. In other words, yeah. balconies to the rooms all looked down onto the foyer, you know. Mm -hmm. And Moon went up to his room, and the, the manager was still standing around the lobby, and this television hit the floor from, like, the 10th, 10th floor, and there's Moon up there. He said, I won't forget what you said. <laughs> Did Procol Harum have any famous fans? Any VIP fans or anything? Oh, lots, yeah. There's a lot of uh, other musicians and singers like Procol. And if they get the chance, and we happen to be in the same town or we're in their town, they'll, they'll come and see us and say hello. No uh, great compliments from any... No, only because we don't say that to each other. I mean, the only person I've gone up and blabbed to like that was Fast Domino, you know because I absolutely loved him, and ended up in a, in a Danish bar after concerts. He'd played in the town, and we'd played in the town, and I just had to go up and blub, and say, I love that, I love that, I love everything. <laughs> and I thought, well, I sounded just like any old fan there. <laughs> don't normally do that with, with people. Did you have any memorable conversations with the Queen when you got your MBE? Unfortunately, Her Majesty, the night before I was due up there, she was taken into hospital because she had a, a very bad knee problem. Oh dear. Who took her place? Prince Charles. Was, was he chatty? He, uh... Oh yeah, he said, hello Gary, nice to see you again. He said, how did the gig go in Zurich the other night? I said, it went fine, thank you sir. Because <laughs> I don't know how he knew we were playing in <laughs> Zurich a couple of nights before. He just absorbs knowledge, I think, or finds out a few things. And uh, he says, how, how did the gig go in? I'm always amazed how you traps carry on, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, just good at making those those conversations. Yeah, well, through the uh, Prince's Trust, he's very supportive of music, <coughs> isn't he? And, uh, and oh, yes, well, I've, I've met yeah. him at those before, yeah. at Prince's Trust events, you know, contributed to, to things. How important to you is your musical legacy? Deep down, it's important. I think that I would like people in a hundred years time to turn around and somehow listen to what I've done in some mm. way or for it to be interpreted by other people a hundred years on not doing bad so far no indeed away 50 years only another 50 to go <laughs> to what extent do you feel you've been given the credit you deserve as an artist as a musician one is always grateful for whatever has happened I mean it could have all gone very wrong, or not gone well, and while I wouldn't have been around doing it, I'd have been a computer programmer or an astronaut. So. <laughs> and how would you like to be remembered after you left this planet? He wasn't a bad guy. <laughs> but as a, as a musician, as an artist? I'll leave it to other people. I don't really think about, about things too much like that, in the point of view of being immodest or wanting to be a star and all those things not really been part of the way I do things I hope that I will think I will be remembered as a great humorist at the end of the day <laughs>